0: Which one would you want me to use? The one he was just using? We could. It'd be stereo. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think you know we were talking about blessings earlier, and I think it's an amazing blessing that we could have those six children up here waving flags, and not one eye was put out. <laughs> I kept watching those flags. Wow, it's amazing, amazing. <clears throat> well, um, we've been aware, Linda and I have been aware for a long time. This, if Those of you who don't know, do you, everybody know Linda? That's her right there. Hi, Linda. You know, if it hadn't been for Linda and her family, I, I wouldn't be standing here right now. But she became a Christian well before I did. Her family prayed for me for a very long time, um, and... If uh, They just brought me into the fold, and just you know f- for all the resistance that I had, all the time that I spent kind of holding back like that um, they just they just prayed me right through that, so i 'm very, very appreciative of that we 've been aware for a long time that jesus gospel is is bigger than personal salvation, uh, but uh, you know i 've been frustrated with with my ability to communicate that, and sometimes. Uh, in my in my effort to communicate it, um, I've I've probably communicated some things that that maybe weren't quite theologically right down the line, straight and correct. And I've been I know, and I've been I've been corrected by uh, by some of you in this room, and I thank you for that because it is how we grow. Um, but uh, we have. Um, in the past few months, maybe actually the past year, we have really begun to grow in understanding how to communicate that a little bit better. One of the books, as a matter of fact, this this sermon is is largely um, based on this book by Amy Sherman called uh, "Kingdom Calling: Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good." I strongly recommend this book. It is it's an easy read, um, but it's a it's a very very good read. But our frustration um, to communicate this larger kingdom message uh, has has been with both with in terms of communicating to our fellow believers as well as those who are not yet believers, and and we, we kept challenging ourselves: How does this bigger picture of the gospel of the kingdom fit in with personal evangelism, personal salvation, and and? Hopefully uh, our our time this morning will help you see that. So one of our favorite passages is Proverbs 11:10, which is the next slide. When the righteous prosper the city rejoices. When the wicked perish there are shouts of joy. This term rejoice is used only one other time in the Old Testament. It describes ecstatic joy. Uh, exultation and triumph that people express in celebration when they 've been delivered from the hands of their oppressors, I think in terms of the movies i 've seen of of when when Paris was liberated and people literally dancing in the streets and and showering the the, uh, the soldiers as they come in with flowers and, and gifts and things just they 're just, they're just crazy dancing, and I just get so excited about this if there 's this kind of joy then by this we realize that the righteous in their prospering must be making a remarkably positive difference in their city. Something so remarkable that people are willing to just dance in the streets. They're so excited they can hardly contain themselves. They must be stewarding their power and their wealth and skills and influence for the common good to bring about noticeable significance tran- transformation in the city. Otherwise, what would be prompting the residents of the city to go crazy with gladness and, and gratitude? It's The righteous are not simply taking lots of good used clothes to the Salvation Army and allowing people to get it at a lower price. I mean, that doesn't. I mean, that doesn't. That doesn't get you going. Okay. There's there's a this dancing in the street rejoicing occurs when the righteous, the tzadakim, Am I saying that right? tzadakim? All right. That Sadakim advanced justice and shalom in the city in such ways that vulnerable people at the bottom stop being oppressed. And they start having genuine opportunity, and they begin to enjoy spiritual and physical health, economic sufficiency and security, nothing less than the foretaste of the kingdom of God. That's what would get people dancing in the street. That's what would get people so excited. So, what does a Rejoice City look like? Next slide, please. Rejoice City is enjoying justice. So, what is justice? It's made up of rescue and equity and restoration. Uh, uh, Rescue is about remedying violent injustice. It's about bringing about the kinds of foretaste of justice celebrated in Isaiah 62, 8 and 9, where, where Isaiah talks about ending bonded labor. In Isaiah 61, 1, where he's talking about freeing the illegally detained from their dark prisons. Equity is about ensuring that the poor and the weak are not disproportionately burdened by society's problems. I mean, society's always going to have problems. Equity is about making sure that the poor and the weak are not disproportionately burdened by those. So Isaiah 32, 5 to 8, talks about no more scoundrels in power, defrauding the needy. Um, Ezekiel 34 talks about prophesying that there will be no one who plunders the weak. So rescue and equity followed by restoration. Restoration has to do with not just the punishing of the wrongdoers. But with the healing of the wrongdoers and the rest and their restoration to community, I am amazed when I read Old Testament passages in which God is is meeting out justice and and just, you know, all those things that that make us kind of shiver when we're when we're here on the New Testament side of, of the cross. And yet in almost every single one of those passages you see a passage about restoration. But I will restore them. Zechariah eight sixteen to 17, God promises restoration of the relationship that he has with his people all the way along. So a rejoiced city is marked by rescue and equity and restoration, but it's also marked by peace, shalom. And shalom peace is, is broader than just our word peace. It has to do with, with intimacy with God, relationships, with God. Beauty in, in recognizing who God is in this new earth, this, this place that we, that we live now, and the place that we are yet to live. Shalom with self, peace with self, health and wellness and wholeness. In the consummated kingdom, the one yet to come, there will be no more sickness, decay, etc. There will be hope. So the Bible is filled with preview passages about the kingdom. Everybody, everybody's seen those, and, and it's filled with them. And we always see hope in those passages. We learn that God will set the lonely in families in Psalm 68. He will heal the barren in Psalm 113. In the new creation, all of our hopes for change, for healing, for renewal, for, for resurrection, they'll all be fulfilled, offering hope to those who feel Hopeless. Is kingdom work. That's what the work of the kingdom is. That's what Jesus said he came for. It's marked by comfort. God cares about the wounded in spirit. His comfort is expressed in multiple metaphors. In Isaiah 54, of those rejected and abandoned who experience embrace, of the disgraced and the humiliated who receive new dignity and healing, of the widow who experiences the Lord himself as a husband. Wow. Talk about comfort. Shalom with others. Unity. We see that over and over, that theme throughout both the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 25, 69 describes a feast for all people. And in Revelation, we see worship dis, um, involving every nation, tribe, people, and language a unity that, that we can hardly imagine. We see security and lack of violence in all these, in the, in all these um, precursor kinds of, kinds of scriptures. Wars will cease. We will be secure in our own land, and we will live in, secure, in safety, and no one will make us afraid. We'll see shalom with creation itself. We'll see economic flourishing Micah 4.4, 4, where everyone has his own vine and his own fig tree. And I know all of you are sitting here thinking, I sure wish I had my own fig tree. <laughs> just to be able to pick those figs any old time I wanted to, you know. Just Isaiah 65, 21 to 22, where we enjoy the fruits of our labors and we all have shelter. Isaiah 49, when hunger will cease. And Joel 3.18, I love this quote. In that day the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Isn't that, I mean, that's just such a wonderful image. Believers advance foretastes of the kingdom when they devote themselves to the great work of relief and development, to hunger alleviation, to microenterprise, to sustainable agriculture, to efforts to find new ways to provide everyone with adequate shelter, and clean water, to advocacy for the rule of law, so that the just are free, uh, the just and the free enterprise can flourish. Sustainability, so many of the preview passages speak of the healing of creation itself as God restores what was once barren. So why don't we see that? There's a tension between the now and the not yet kingdom. So these preview passages permit us a big God-sized vision for our labors and our hopes. But there's a danger of them encouraging utopianism. The kingdom of justice and shalom will arrive only at the return of the kingdom king, and only in the king's power, and by his wisdom and guidance will we make progress in transforming our communities? On the other hand, we must not believe that because the full vision of the preview passages won't be realized until the age to come, that we don't need to do anything now. It's certainly true that we are waiting for the kingdom's full consummation at Jesus' return. But while we wait, it is the task of the church, Christ's body, to enact and embody foretastes of the coming realities of that kingdom. We, as Jesus' disciples, have the amazing privilege of participating in his work of restoration. Indeed, joining him in this work constitutes the very center of our redeemed lives. So, What do the righteous look like? The tzaddikim, singular is tzaddik. Did I get it right? All right. The tzaddikim are the just, the people who follow God's heart and ways and who see everything they have as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purposes. Joe just got finished blessing us with that vision. Paul's going to talk about that next week the idea of everything that we have being something that we are to give out, that's what the righteous are. By definition, they are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the community, ahead of the needs. And we see that all the way through Scripture. Reverend Tim Keller, in a sermon in 2005, talked about that. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a truism that through Scripture talks, God talks about the righteous and the wicked as two sides. And when he's talking about the righteous, he's clearly talking about those who put their needs second to the community. Therefore, the wicked are those who put their needs first. So what do the righteous look like? They're people who are focused up. They've got a Godward orientation that implies, in the work setting, that implies working for God's glory. Not in workaholism, 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 not in that. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. I just realized. Um, but in, in that working as if you are working for the Lord. It's an upward orientation that, that, that shows itself in humility, embracing Functional and daily dependence on the Spirit, and an eternal perspective, valuing work as participating in the new creation. And you've, you've, if you've heard us preach before, we talk a lot about we talk a lot about the marketplace, we talk a lot about the workplace, and that that is how our lives are played out for most of us. And and to do that in a in a total reliance on the Spirit. The righteous are also focused inwardly on personal holiness. And, and in, the, in the marketplace, that shows itself by, by obvious things, not cheating and not lying, sexual purity in the workplace, those kinds of things. Fruit of the Spirit, grace-based relationships, that our relationships are grace-based. That's very hard sometimes in the workplace. It shows itself in the open-handedness that that Joe was just talking about, generosity, eschewing materialism and self-indulgence. It shows itself in compassion for the hurting, proactively seeking others' needs. It's not simply waiting until someone comes to us and says, "Will you will you give to United Way?" It's proactively seeking others' needs, and the righteous are outward-focused as well. You will see them involved in social justice, bettering the conditions of workers, promoting just relationships with customers and suppliers and other stakeholders, being a good corporate neighbor or good corporate citizen, encouraging transformation within one's own organization, and social reform within one's sphere of influence. What we see... The next slide. Oh, I, I didn't have you move. Sorry about that. <laughs> the next one. <clears throat> and the next one. <laughs> and the next one. I haven't been telling you to move. I, that's my, my my fault, sorry. Um, I think we briefly talked just a couple weeks ago about the ecclesia. And um, there's a lot to be said about it. But one of the things we've learned about the ecclesia is that it's, it's the assembly at the outer gate. It's those people that were originally, that word were those people, the righteous, those that had standing in the community that would be called together outside the city gate to make de- decisions about the common welfare. That's who we're supposed to be as a church. We're supposed to be the called out, the ecclesia, The church, somehow, over time, we got confused to think it was that little building that we're all in. Okay? So we have to be, obviously, we have to be careful of that. And I know you all know that here. So why aren't we all the righteous? And this is where we're going to make the transition now. Our gospel is too small. While it rightly centers on the vital atoning work of Jesus on the cross it fails to grasp the comprehensive significance of his redemptive work. The famous bridge illustration, you've all seen that, that, that used for personal evangelism? Is, I, I get some of these? Okay. The idea that we're on one side and there's this great chasm of sin that separates us from God on the other side, and the only way to bridge that chasm is with the cross. Okay, it's a great, it's a, just a wonderful... Um, evangelistic tool that was developed by Campus Crusade years ago. It's true, but that gospel isn't complete. For Jesus came preaching not just the gospel of personal justification, but the gospel of the kingdom. Did you know that Jesus never teaches that we should ask him into our hearts? Search the scriptures. There's no place where he says, Ask me into your hearts. Rather, he constantly teaches asking us into his kingdom. There's a big difference there. There's a big difference. And while it's a wonderful tool to ask Jesus into your heart, that's a great way to think about it. It's incomplete, it's too narrow. Our worship music reinforces this too narrow gospel. Sherman um, talks about studies, she's got a whole section on this, talks about studies of modern Christian music in which the personalistic message of me and Jesus, which is a fine message, it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with it. But it vastly overshadows the kingdom perspective and the broader understanding of Christ's redemptive work and our call to follow Jesus in his mission of shalom. She talked about one study where they took 127 of the most popular worship songs at that time, and and on a scale of one to four, where one is me and Jesus and four is the is the kingdom gospel, the average score of the 127 worship songs was 1.57, skewed toward that too narrow gospel. Again, I love singing those songs. I really do. I I get I get um, picked up by those songs. I, I'm drawn near to those songs. But if you, if you look at that, what it does is it brings us into an inadequate discipleship. Those songs and the books and the teaching that flows out of those are strongest when they move over towards a, theologi- a theology of the kingdom. The books strongest on a robust theology that could undergird the life of a tzaddik, the righteous, are generally not the books being chosen by the highest percentage of Christians. Eight prolific Christian presses were studied where they, where they put out literally hundreds of books a year. 87% of the books dealt with subjects related to Self. Is that wrong? No. It's not wrong, but it gives an inadequate view of the gospel, and it's certainly an inadequate view of discipleship. Dallas Willard's book, uh, The Great Omission, is based on the claim that because the narrow gospel prevails in evangelicalism, we we gain converts but not followers of Jesus. Willard says the churches of the Western world would not have made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. Sherman goes on to say that the implications of all this is that our preaching, music, and books do not provide rich soil for the nurture of believers. This too narrow gospel focuses believers missionally only on the work of soul winning. It has little to say about Jesus' holistic ministry or the comprehensive nature of his work of redemption and restoration. It focuses on the problem of personal sin only. This intimating that sanctification is a matter only of personal morality rather than that plus social justice. So put differently, it focuses only on what we've been saved from. Rather than also telling us what we've been saved for. And then, one other thing that keeps us from being the tzaddakim, the righteous, is an inadequate view of heaven. Paul's preached about this many times, so I, I don't think any of us share this. But N.T. Wright says that most Christians' ultimate hope is of going to heaven. This vague sense of our souls being forever with God somewhere up above, out there. Randy Elkhorn says that most Christians profess a belief in the resurrection of the body, but they spiritualize it. Two-thirds of Christians believe they will not have bodies after the resurrection. The Bible teaches us that what awaits us in the afterlife is embodied life in a recreated material universe called the new earth. And again, Paul's preached this many times Space, time, and matter will be redeemed. This truth has immense significance for us in our vocational life, in our work life, in our daily marketplace living. What we do in the present, painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, doesn't matter, will last into God's future. Wright says, our work indeed is not in vain, as Paul, not this Paul, as the Apostle Paul says, because we are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. So with all that, how do we communicate? How do we communicate in such a way that we can advance evangelism? How do we call people both? to intimacy with God and the forgiveness of sins, and to entering into a kingdom work to which he's called us. We mentioned that bridge illustration earlier, a campus crusade made popular. So I'm going to show you a similar tool used from another campus ministry, InterVarsity. And unlike the bridge illustration, the big story centers the gospel story right away on what God and his mission is in the world rather than on the human and the sinfulness. And by the way, you can download this from the App Store or from the iStore. Um, it, it's, it's, cu- it's a great little app that, that comes up. And unfortunately, these are, these are my illustrations that you'll see here, so they're my drawings of the same thing. Not quite as good. But um, we begin by asking people what they think of the world today. That's a great opening. What are you hearing in the news and seeing in your own experience? The world's really messed up. And people will talk about that and ask them how they feel about that. Because no one thinks violence and oppression are good things. We ache for a better world. And right away, we're putting ourselves in a, in a common place. Just as hunger points to the existence of food and thirst highlights the reality of water somewhere, our ache for a better world seems to point to the possibility that there either was one or there will be one. So, he then shows a second drawing with a clean circle in it. Thank you. Perfect. In a Christian worldview, a better world did exist. God created it. And it worked beautifully. All creation was under his leadership and enjoyed him as the source of life. So, there was us in the world, us in each other, us in God. Remember the shalom things we talked about earlier? And... We were designed to live in this trusting and intimate relationship with God and with each other, with Him as our just and loving leader. The world and all that's in it has been designed for good. So, if we go on to the next one, He shows us yet another circle. And clearly, this one shows us that the world has been messed up, it isn't living according to its design. So we rejected God's leadership. We took charge and essentially became our own God. So we broke relationship with God, left ourselves and our world in a state of death. And again, there's plenty of scriptures for this. Um, on every level, we've become corrupt. And we see evidence of this corruption all around us. And, and it, broke, it broke relationship with us and the world. It's spoiled peace with us and God, with us on the world, with us and each other. We harmfully use people instead of serving them. We see this in conflicts. We see this in objectification of peoples and groups, alienation, bitterness, abuse, lust, anger, etc. If we had a discussion right now about how we feel about what ISIS is doing right now, it would be very difficult for all of us in this room to hold on to some sort of, of an awareness that God loves and died for every single one of those people in ISIS. It would be hard for us because our own stuff sneaks in. You know, this is, this is the Romans 3.23, all who sin and fall short of God, the glory of God. It damages our relationship with each other and with God. And, and our corruption compels us towards evil, even as we try to do good. And again, the Apostle Paul preaches about that as well. Education and technology and government, they never quite get to the root of the problem. But someday, the Bible says, there is going to be a day when the entire race will be judged and everything set right. Righteousness will come in. So, what does that look like? The next circle says God loved the world too much to leave it this way. And because he loves us, he responds to this injustice and this corruption. He came as Jesus over 2,000 years ago. Everybody knows John three sixteen. By doing that, God started teaching us a better way to live, a way in which all the good things that are supposed to happen actually do. And Jesus did three things. He identified with us, he became one of us, living in a damaged world, although he didn't contribute to that damage. And he owned those things. He died on the cross, owning the judgment we deserved for the corruption of the world and the corruption of our hearts. I, I like to think that about like like inoculations. You know, you go to the doctor and, and they give you a, a flu shot. Did you know that they're injecting the flu in you? Did you all know that? little bit. But the idea is to inoculate you. And that's what Jesus did. He came in and inoculated the world against that evil. And because he did that, he overcame the world. He actually rose from the dead and defeated death, unleashing the power to restore our damaged world. Through Jesus, everything is being restored for better. The next one. So Jesus calls us to follow him as he heals the damage in the world. By following him, we become the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Those, lots of stick figures in this one because people are being sent out. Jesus is sending people out. Jesus has the power to restore our damaged world. He invites us to follow him together into this world, to expose the corruption and bring justice and love joyfully. Us and each other. He's, he has the power to restore our relationships. He invites us to follow him by serving, loving, and forgiving each, each other. Us and God, the bridge illustration, here's where it comes in. God has the power to restore relationships with God. He invites us to follow him by coming under his leadership. And what does he ask us to do? The same thing he did, identify. We identify with Jesus just by believing his death and resurrection broke, broke the cycle of corruption in this world. And owning, owning our own individual responsibility for this damaged world. We call that repentance. Okay? And, and receiving his forgiveness for that and overcoming We overcome the damage in the world by committing to follow Jesus and his mission in the world. God gives us the power to follow Jesus by giving us the Holy Spirit and a community of people who also follow Jesus. With Jesus, our mission is to be sent to heal. So why can't we just jump to that last diagram? Next one. Well, We might like the mission that Jesus is talking about, but we want to do it without faith or spirituality. And even if we could do this, which we can't, we'd be missing out. You see, the world's problems are infinite. We're bound to get overwhelmed if we try to take care of it all on our own. Plus, our anger and our prejudices and our self-righteousness will compete with our service. We're limited by our own stuff that we've got. We need resources like the Christian community and God's presence, the Holy Spirit, which we can get only through Jesus. So this presentation ends by saying, Where are you? In which of these circles are you? The question is next slide. Without that fourth circle, being discipled, filled, and sent out in the body of Christ, will you get stuck? Will you get stuck elsewhere? Will you get stuck in the third circle, remaining out there with your personal ticket to heaven, in the holy huddle, enjoying fellowship with God and other believers, but divorced from the mission of God? See, without this, we will fail to become the tzadikim. We will not become part of the Ecclesia. The city will not experience that dancing in the street joy on our watch. So where are you? Where are you? Where is each one of us? Our challenge to you today is to examine your own heart. I trust that everyone here has accepted Christ. If you haven't, any one of us will be happy to talk with you about that. You can see here how it's a tool towards making a better life not only for you, but for the whole world. But I'm not sure that everyone here, including myself, has fully accepted walking into that mission of Christ that he calls us to. The bigger mission of not just calling people to personal relationship with Christ, but calling them into discipling the world through being the righteous, through being the sadaqim, to bringing a joy to your city, to your country, to your neighborhood, to your family that will cause people to dance in the streets with excitement. So let me pray for you right now. Father God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you, Lord, that each person here has heard your call. I pray into each person here a new understanding of their identity, their identity as the tzadakim. Each person here is indeed called to be the righteous, called to work alongside with Jesus. Now that, now that you have joined his family, that you would join his mission. I pray that each one of us here would awaken to the broader call in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that you have blessed each and every one of us with the power to do that through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to fall upon every one of us in powerful ways that would awaken us to new ways to serve you I thank you, Lord, for this, for this ekklesia, this group of called-out believers who meet together in fellowship. I pray that Lydia House would be a place where we would support and encourage, but that we would goad and urge each other out as well. I thank you, Lord, that you have counted us among your tzadakim. And I bless each one of you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.